Words they get golly hard when they jumble, jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle, murky fool, like squirtle and cake boo, cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the tail wagging the dog, specifically in the area of higher education. I've been thinking about statistics, data, and self-serving reporting. I've been thinking about social mobility, poverty, profit, integrity, and the definition of success. I've been thinking about the health of our democracy and the future of this grand community we call the United States of America and the best way for our young people to thrive. My guest today is Paul Tuff. Paul is the author of the best-selling book, How Children Succeed, Grit, Curiosity, and the Hidden Power of Character. His new book, The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes Us or Breaks Us, is the topic of our conversation today. It's at once disheartening, enlightening, and inspiring. Welcome, Paul, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Thank you. It's great to be here. So my first question is, at what point you purchased a protective head helmet to avoid injury from banging your head against the table in frustration and disgust? <laughs> a quarter of the way through, I'm like, ah, oh, his head must hurt. Oh, yeah, I hear, I know what you're saying. I did never, never actually got the helmet. But yeah, it, I mean, it's everything you said, disheartening and inspiring. Uh, it's the same thing was true for reporting this. So there were moments... That, you know, brought tears to my eyes and made me like super happy and joyful. And then, but there were absolutely moments, especially sitting there late at night, like looking through some of these, you know, reports and things uh, that, that the data, the, the whole landscape of higher education right now, it can be extraordinarily frustrating. Well, and saddening in so many points, also inspiring at times, but also so surprising. And we'll talk about a lot of those elements, but there were some that I was like, wait, what? This is true? Um, you know, hard to believe. And, and I, I'm kind of in the middle of it right now with my daughter, who's going to be a senior. And oh boy. a number of the elements were super surprising to me. Really, um, it was enlightening. So we'll talk about those. I, I want to start with um, what makes you so interested in the topic of social mobility? I think it's two things. I mean, I, I say in the book that it's something that's drawn me for a long time. And and I think I think there are these two reasons. One is one is that it, I do think it's an incredibly important issue in terms of the health of our, our nation and our economy and our democracy. Can people start without a lot in life and move up? Is that is there a pathway that we're providing to young Americans uh, who are not wealthy, are not well off? Um, that's a huge issue, and and uh, uh, and I think what I what I found in reporting the book is that more than ever has been true before. The answer to that question can be found in higher education. But then the second reason that I'm drawn to issues of mobility is really on a much more sort of personal human level. Like when I started talking, especially to young people, you know, people in their late teens and early twenties and the sort of college age folks about this process of like how your life is changing. It's just always fascinating. Like whether it's a happy story or a sad story or a meandering story, um, it's a remarkable time of life. And, and it is, and, and especially for kids who are really trying to change things, who are, you know, want things to be different than it was for them growing up. I mean, partly because it's a hard it's hard to achieve that mobility, but also it's painful because if you are trying to make that change, it means to a certain degree you're leaving behind your your family and the way you grew up and your culture, and that is always uh, dramatic and often painful. So, do you think can we have a healthy democracy without having um, a, an ability for upward mobility? Can it can the democracy survive in a static class system? Uh, 
No, I mean, I mean, I think you know that that's like the way that uh, the way things used to be in Europe, right? That's why that's one of the reasons why this country was started, right? That that uh, so I, I wrote about uh, in the first chapter about uh, this famous book of political science, uh, Democracy in America, by Alexis de Tocqueville. I sort of heard about this book, uh, always heard about this book, and thought I should have read it, but now I finally read it to do this. And it, it so this is this you know French aristocrat political scientist writing in the early nineteenth century. And he's describing what's different about the United States than than what he's used to, you know, the, the more sort of entrenched hierarchies of Europe. And that was the thing that he kept coming back to, this idea of mobility. And he was sort of puzzled by it. It was like, well, wait, the rich people aren't always rich and the poor people aren't always poor. That just seems so odd. Um, but it was like that that was the thing that has always been the thing that I think has made the United States what it is and that has made it great. Um, and so I absolutely think if we lose that, if we no longer uh, have the possibility of that kind of shift, uh, we lose a critical part of what this country is. And you talk about how we got there, the ability to do that has changed in history, how it started like you just needed to be strappy, um, and work hard, have grit. You talk a lot about it in your first book, you know, grit and resilience and, and strength of character, and you could just make it happen. And that that sort of changed when more people began to go to college. Um, what did that look like and from kind of that time prior to World War II to where we are today? Yeah, so uh, again, this was not history that I knew a lot, but going back and looking at the at like the super wealthy Americans of the late nineteenth, uh, early twentieth century, you know, uh, Carnegie and Rockefeller and people from that era, all of them started without much, uh, and through yes, like grit and perseverance and lucky breaks, they got incredibly wealthy, and that was going on, you know, to a lesser extent all over the place. It again, it's part of that sort of American uh, mythos of of you know going out west or being an oil wildcatter or going to the gold rush. Like there are these ways that Americans, like through their own their own pluck and ingenuity, are are going from poverty to wealth, um, and then. It shifted not overnight, but it shifted around World War II into this system where that's now much more difficult. And the way that mobility uh, happens when it does happen is through higher education. Certainly the GI Bill era right after World War II, when so many more uh, Americans, especially Americans without a lot of resources, went to college. Uh, I think that was a big part of the shift, but it was also part of this overall shift toward a knowledge economy that the United States experienced in the 20th century. I think you could write a whole book on the GI Bill. <laughs> I was thinking, I'm very thankful for it. My parents would never have met without it. But the the just a little bit you talk about it, the idea that the colleges weren't excited about that. They're like, we don't want all these losers in, in our colleges. And how is that going to change things? And it, it turned out to be such a, a different um, scenario than, than they expected. So many more people went and they were amazing students. Yeah, it was it was. Uh, a really fun part of the reporting was going back. So I, yeah, I read like 10 books about the GI Bill era. And, uh, and, and then, you know, one of my favorite parts of reporting was going and talking to a, a, a veteran, a man named Patrick Fay, who's in his mid 90s now, uh, and who had fought in World War Two, fought in the Battle of the Bulge, and then came back and went to college on the GI Bill. Um, and that both my conversations with him and the, the whole history of it, yeah, that was the thing that was so striking about it. I think we think of the GI Bill as just, okay, it was this big expansion. 
of college going. But what was important, certainly from my point of view, is that it was a whole different type of kid who was going. So before World War II, higher education had been for rich kids. That was just what it was. Um, if you went to the right prep school, you went on to college, you, that, was, that was what your life was. Um, but suddenly, so many of the GIs who were coming back and going to college were, were you know, farm boys from Iowa. They were like street kids from New York. They were uh, people whose parents absolutely hadn't gone to college um, and hadn't really thought about college before the GI Bill came along. But it was this, when they got that opportunity, they, were, they, they grabbed it and, they, and it changed their lives and it changed the country. And it changed the kids' lives and their grandchildren's lives and their great-grandchildren's mm-hmm. lives from from your conversation with him. He talks about that, that you could understand why education for them was the, the golden ticket. Is that still the case? Is higher education now a pathway or a barrier to social mobility? Well, it's a little of both. I mean, I feel like that that's the big question that I wrestle with in this book. Um, and and what makes the answer complicated is that for individual young people, including a, a bunch of students who I read about in the book, it still does work. Uh, the higher, higher education still does work as this engine of social mobility. You know, I write about this uh, young woman who grew up in in real poverty, who's now um, a junior at Princeton. This woman named Kiki, um, and you know, for her, it, it it's working. <laughs> like she is, she has. It will have a future unlike anything that she could have imagined growing up, um, and it's working for lots of other kids as well. But for the nation as a whole, as a system, it is not working. Um, higher education has become much more stratified. So in those institutions like Princeton, where Kiki is going, she is one of a very small number of poor kids who are going to school there. And mostly those institutions, uh, we've learned from data over the past few years, mostly those institutions are educating almost exclusively rich kids, uh, the same way they were before World War II. In some ways that, you know, they have not shifted. Um, And the institutions where most low-income students are going uh, are under-resourced, they have low graduation rates, um, and what's more, they're public institutions that, that we, the public, have been cutting funding to, especially over the last decade. Public funding for higher education is down on a per-student basis 16% just from 2001. And that's crazy. Like This is this era where, where higher education matters in more than it ever has. Like It is very difficult for young people to succeed without some kind of post-secondary credential. Um, and yet we are not providing a pathway for them to achieve that. So in that way, I, I, that, that's the way that I feel that higher education is no longer as a whole, this engine of mobility, but a barrier to it. And the statistics with that are so clear cut. That was something that was also surprising to me. You know, there's a lot of talk now about, oh, does college really matter? Um, and you're like, yes, yes, it does. And here are the stats to prove it. It makes a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, I like... I, I I am sympathetic to the idea that like it just can't be right that everybody needs a college degree uh, to succeed. So I I dropped out of college twice myself and didn't get a BA. So I I am with the people who are skeptical about the value of college. But when you look overall at the statistics, um, a college degree is exceptionally valuable in the the workplace uh, in the job market. Um, the, what, what economists call the college wage premium, the amount uh, that having a BA earns you extra is larger now than it ever has been. Um, and, and, and part of, I think, what is complicated about it is that, that um, 
it's not so much that having a BA is get, gets you so much further than it used to. It's that not having a BA has now become uh, a real barrier to any kind of mobility. If you don't get any sort of post-secondary credential, it is exceptionally difficult to make it even to the middle class, let alone beyond the middle class. Um, and so, so I do think that there is, um, I mean, I do sympathize with the feeling that, uh, you know, it can't be right that everybody has to go to college. And yet the, the, uh, the evidence from, you know, the economic data is that without some sort of post-secondary credential, it's really difficult to succeed. And that was one of the really sad aspects of the book is the idea that the, the kids were now going to college out of fear rather than hope. And so they don't drop further down um, in a, to a, a lower socioeconomic level. Um, and I also want to say when we talk about colleges, we're casting the net really wide. So it can include community college. And then we're also talking about the elite college campuses. And, and those are very different worlds. Um, and, you know, you mentioned Kiki, and, and I, you do such a great job in the book talking about these kids, the various kids you, you mentioned, their experiences on all levels. Um, what was it like to get there? What was it like once they got there? How hard is it for them to stay? And how hard is it for them to feel like they belong and fit in, especially on these elite campuses? where there are such uh, stratification, um, you know, equal to Tocqueville's uh, definition of, of the classes. And, and um, you know, they're existing, learning to exist in these microcosms of, of um, groups they can, can fit in and not, and that they're not just based on race and gender um, and, and even economic level. And there's so much more as to what schools were they in before, Mm-hmm. Um, where did their parents come from? Had their parents gone to college? Yeah, I mean, uh, that that really struck me. I think we some of us have this idea in our head that, you know, when low-income students or students of color or first-generation students are admitted to these highly selective institutions, that they struggle um, academically, right? Um, and actually, mostly they don't. So Kiki, for instance, the young woman who grew up in poverty and is now at Princeton, she's like getting straight A's. She's an, like an incredible student. But what she and lots of other kids like her have found is that from a cultural uh, level, the the experience of like going to a kind of regular American in uh, such a an elite prestigious institution, almost entirely surrounded by rich kids, it is just this culture shock that goes really deep and makes you question a lot about yourself and the institution you're in and your country. Um, and so I try to describe in this one chapter uh, about Kiki her experience of getting to Princeton and what that's like. But she's hardly alone. I mean, you know, Michelle Obama, another African-American uh, uh, super achiever who got to Princeton uh, a generation earlier than Kiki, she described the same experience. Uh, and there are kids at, at all kinds of institutions who are having that experience. One of the things that's interesting to me is that during the time that I was reporting on this book, those those young people, the first generation of students at highly selective institutions have started to kind of identify themselves as as a as a cohort and connect and they have conferences and they have, you know, online resources. Um, and so they are kind of, you know, sort of coming out of the closet to a certain extent and saying to their institutions, uh, first of all, you need more people like us. Uh, and second, you need to do more to make us feel uh, at home and not like outsiders. 
So I'm thinking about you sitting in the park with uh, one of the girls you're reporting on, and she's about to hear what college she gets into, and it is not a pretty scene. So I'm wondering what that was like for you. But also, you know, does Davidson versus Penn really matter? It turned out, you know, she she had gotten into Davidson. She wanted to get into Penn. Um, She ended up going to Stanford, and that was like, you know, a bit of a disappointment, which one would be surprised Mm. about. So so does Davidson versus Penn matter? Um, You talk about wealthy kids go to the most selective school they're admitted to, and that poor kids typically don't. Um, so maybe we could talk about why that is and if it's a problem. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a good important question. So yeah, I described this scene of sitting with uh, this young woman Shannon Torres uh, on a park bench in Harlem as she's waiting to hear from these institutions, and um, it was just on an emotional level. It was an incredible um, uh, incredible experience to be able to sit there with her as she was getting these results. It was not a happy day, definitely, but um, but it, it just gave me insights into the emotional power of that uh, and the emotional cost of that experience. I think for so many incredibly hardworking young people like Shannon, um, but but I also tried in that chapter to use and in the book in general to use that that experience where she felt so strongly that going to Penn would give her one kind of life and going to Davidson, uh, this you know very good though not Ivy League school in North Carolina, would give her another. And I think that most mostly our response, you know, adults in the world when we see kids freaking out college, whether they're rich or poor, is to say, listen, take it easy. Like it doesn't matter that much. Right. Um, and it, to on an individual level, I think that's true. I think that is a good message. I think that um, I think she would be Shannon would have been totally fine at Davidson. She would be doing great. Uh, and I think that's true of, of kids in general. However, I think it's also there's something a little bit um, dangerous about trying to make that case, especially to low income students, because, um, you know, there is evidence out there. I I cite these studies by this uh, economist at Stanford named Carolyn Hawksby. She makes it really clear that the difference between between, you know, a a Penn or a Princeton and um, Davidson is substantial. Those those super selective institutions are spending way more money per student. Uh, They are they have uh, a more positive effect on future earnings. So you actually are more likely to get rich if you go to one of those uh, super selective institutions rather than a just very selective institution. And so on the one hand, for any individual, does it matter if you get really rich or just pretty rich? <laughs> um, probably not. However, a system in which it is the the rich kids who are uh, in droves going to those most highly selective institutions, and we're saying to the kids like Shannon, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. You don't have to go to those places. You can just go to Davidson. That is perpetuating exactly the kind of divide uh, that is that is so predominant now in higher education. So um, on an individual level, I felt like saying to Shannon, it doesn't matter. On a societal level, it does matter whether kids like Shannon get into Penn. You say elite college campuses are almost entirely populated by the students who benefit the least from the education they receive there. So let's talk a little bit about college admissions. And this was where, for me, there were a lot of ahas. Um, and the, the biggest one was that it turns out there's a heck of a lot of pressure on both sides of the equation that I didn't realize, that economics for the colleges um, is a huge factor in who they're letting in and how they're going about deciding. Um, yeah. Was that a surprise to you or was that something you understood going in? It was a huge surprise. And and it, the, the sort of the way the book evolves uh, w- w- reflected actually the, the, how time passed in my reporting. And so early on in my reporting, 
I was mostly talking to students, um, both you know, rich students who were, I, I followed this one SAT tutor in Washington, D.C., and talked to a lot of his uh, wealthy kids about their process, their application process. And then I talked to kids like Shannon and Kiki as they were uh, applying to schools as well. And the vibe you get when you're um, uh, a junior or a senior in high school or with, when you're the parent of one of those students is that it's those admissions people who have all the power, like the colleges just, you know, they can do whatever they want. They they make some dreams come true. They dash others. And then they just sit there and like let the giant tuition checks roll in. And, and the reality I discovered once I started hanging out with admissions people is very different. Um, and so I did this other set of reporting, especially at these two institutions, DePaul uh, University in Chicago and Trinity College in Connecticut. And getting to know the, the heads of admissions, heads of enrollment there helped me understand that in reality, it's an extraordinarily anxious time for colleges in general uh, and especially uh, for admissions people because those institutions, and I'm not talking here about the dozen or so richest institutions, um, you know, the, the sort of cream of the crop of the Ivy League, but institutions sort of one step below that, uh, they are uh, in real financial straits, uh, difficult straits. And um, and part of the reason for that is that they are very much dependent on tuition. So uh, how much money they take in each year, it mostly depends on how much they're able to get in tuition from their, uh, from their students. And that's getting harder and harder to maximize. There, there are, is this sort of cycle of tuition discounting that's been going on over the last uh, couple of decades. That means that even though list price tuitions keep going up, the amount that uh, colleges are actually taking in from their students uh, is either staying flat or going down. And as a result, they have, they're in big trouble, but they also need to take uh, the ability to pay into account more than they ever have before. Um, and, and I think what makes, what makes life so difficult for people in those enrollment offices is that that's not the way we talk about it, right? And that's certainly not the way colleges talk about it. They talk about uh, diversity and opportunity and equity. Um, and so that they want to emphasize, you know, letting in more low income students and how diverse each class is. But back in the enrollment office, as they're looking through those files, they've got to think in this very different mindset, who can pay the tuition, who can keep the lights on. And it becomes this insane algorithm, right? Uh, you talk about they meet and they have conferences and, and they bemoan all this, but they, they talk about it. And also they work with these outside entities that that seem a little bit, um, you can see them shrouded in this mystery of darkness that are providing them with statistical data as to how they can best hedge their bets. Um, companies like uh, Hardwick Day that, that are these institutional financial um, organizations that try to, while they're trying to promote diversity, also balance the need for financial stability, and that they really are figuring out um, which kids not would be necessarily the best fits at their school, or the school would be the best fit for them, but economically, who's most likely to accept their admission and then benefit the school most financially. And it turns out to be this group of kids that they identify as CFO specials. So maybe you <laughs> can talk about them a little bit. Yes. Um, great. So I'll just take a step back, and but I will I will definitely get to the CFO specials. So um, yeah, so the, those uh, companies are, are uh, do this arcane um, practice called financial aid optimization. And I didn't understand what that meant until I learned this fact about yield. So um, 
one of the things that's changed in college admissions is that uh, students tend to apply to more institutions each time they apply. And um, as a result, it, it, when a college admits a whole bunch of students, only a, a minority of those students uh, say yes and, and actually show up. Um, and for most uh, institutions, that yield, as it's called, is down like at 30% or below. Um, and again, if you're at the, the the very top of the selectivity scale in the Ivy League and similar schools, most students that you offer admission to will show up. But if, you're, if your number percentage is down like around, you know, 20 or 30%, what makes that so... I mean, it's just kind of a bummer in, in general, right? But it also like being able to predict... Like if you let in, if you need 200 kids to, to show up and you have to let in a thousand, like, well, which 200 are going to show up, right? And are they going to be the ones who can pay? And like, how, who do I admit who's more likely to show up? So it's just, be, admissions has become this incredibly complicated calculation and how much money you offer uh, in tuition discounts or merit aid uh, or financial aid in general to your students affects whether they're going to say yes to your offer of admission. And so the, the math just becomes bewildering and beyond any human brain <laughs> to really understand. And so that's when they go to these uh, outside financial aid optimization firms who say, OK, I can see the, you know, the, the particular profile of this kid. If you offer him twelve thousand uh, dollars in merit aid, he's going to show up and say yes. If you offer him eleven thousand, he's going to say no. Right. And this is sort of based on like past uh, past experiences. And so that that uh, defined that decides who they admit and who they don't. Um, but on the one hand, I feel like this is incredibly uh, sort of arcane and complicated. On the other, when you are in that office, especially if your college is in financial trouble, all of that mathematics all boils down to kind of the same question, which is you need to let in more rich kids, um, and especially rich kids who, who aren't at the top of their class, because those are the kids who are more likely to go to, you know, a better institution than yours, right? And so uh, what these um, enrollment managers that I talked to described was how, wh what a benefit this has been for uh, low academic achievement, high family income kids. Um, and, and those are the kids who this one enrollment manager described as the CFO specials or the chief financial officer specials. Uh, they are the chief financial officer, the one who's trying to make sure there's enough income comes in. They're really happy when you admit somebody who maybe doesn't have the best academic record, but has a rich family because they're going to pay. They're going to say yes to your offer because they don't have uh, such great offers from other places. And if you look nationally at the statistics, that that is the cohort, kids with high family incomes and low academic achievement, that has increased its college going the most over the last couple of decades. So we're definitely going to put a thick check there about one of the most heartbreaking parts. Um, and from all aspects, and you think of the fact that it has become a rankings game on both sides of the table. And that for kids, not only are they already under the stress of these rankings as far as their grade point averages and their SAT or ACT scores, but they've got this no other, what well, to me was this invisible element of being gauged by the state that they come from, um, the community they come from, the the economic level of that community, and maybe that school, that there are all these other 
uh, equations that are involved in this calculation that they have no control of and, and probably no knowledge of. I'm definitely after this interview going to drop a book off. Uh, we'll send her one after September 10th for the college counselors because I'm not sure if they're aware. Uh, not that they can do anything about it, but it just seems like the more, more awareness about this, the better um, as to what is really going on behind the scenes. And so with that, the next question, have you sent an advanced copy of the book to the U.S. News and World Report? Um, and, and how much influence does the America's Best Colleges list really wield? Uh, I'm not sure if we've, <laughs> if we've sent one to U.S. News, but I'm sure they will um, be intrigued by its findings. Um, so, yeah, U.S. News, U.S. News is it, the, the U.S. News list is a strange thing because it's I mean, it's not like it's this huge, powerful thing like U.S. News as a magazine is like went out of business. All, the, all they are now is a college rankings organization. Right. But it is it just has this this enormous power in the world of uh, admissions and admissions. People hate it. Like there was this poll number that I cite where like 87 percent say that it makes their lives worse and, and it makes them uh, favor factors in admissions that they wish they didn't have to favor. Um, but uh, but yet uh, American parents seem to take it very seriously. And so there's lots of data that shows that if you go up on the uh, US news list in any given year, you're gonna get more and better applications next year. Uh, and if you go down, you're gonna get fewer. And so the pressure to uh, pay attention to the particular um, criteria that they use to rank colleges is really strong. And those criteria are kind of random. <laughs> it's just like what US News decided Americans needed to pay attention to. And so they put a lot of uh, emphasis on how much a college pay spends on uh, its students, which on the one hand is good, colleges should spend a lot on students, but it makes it if you want to save money, uh, and make it easier for students to uh, afford to go to your school, you're going to fall on the US News list, which means fewer people will apply. They put a whole lot of emphasis on SAT scores, uh, which and those scores uh, correlate very strongly with family income. So th that emphasis makes it more likely, it makes it easier for uh, uh, colleges and universities to admit rich kids and harder for them to admit poor kids. Um, so. So U.S. News does have all this power. The thing about it is it's like it's not like it's U.S. News's fault exactly. I mean, you know, I don't think it's a it's a it's an institution that does a great service uh, in higher education in general. But if it didn't exist, someone else would invent it. Right. Like people like rankings. They want to, uh, you know, there's a lot of parents and a lot of students who want to believe that their kids are going to the most elite, the most selective institutions. Um, and so I think if, if U.S. News wasn't there, someone else would be collecting the same data. I think that, that we want to hope at least that the rankings are, and definitely believe that the rankings are based on something substantial. And what you found was, you know, they, they really aren't. Um, that it doesn't make for a co better college experience. It doesn't. I mean, it, it again. It's this um, s the the tail wagging the dog, but then in this yeah. cyclical, <laughs> unending cycle, where because they just established these parameters, and then parents, of course, and kids like having those, that then everyone is now adjusting uh, their rankings to them, which has created you know billion dollar industries around it. Um, and having some negative consequences as far as, uh, you know, counterproductive measures for colleges' educational missions, which I think if we go back to the very beginning was probably the point um, yes. of, of college yeah. to begin with. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think it, it there's a way that those rankings incentivize uh, colleges to admit more rich kids in all kinds of ways, and and I don't I don't think that was the original intention. Um, but the rankings, in some ways, you know, they they just sort of boil down to like who has the most money, which college has the most money, which college uh, has the richest kids, and thus the highest SAT scores, incoming SAT scores. So yeah, all all of the kind of trends that I describe in this in this book, the sort of rich getting richer uh, fact uh, phenomenon that's been happening in higher education, U.S. news um, uh, rewards it at, at every stage of the game. And it seems that it leads a door open for kind of gaming the system um, and a part to play for community colleges and the fact that these colleges, who they let in, what their students' rankings are for um, sometimes second, but mostly third and fourth year students, don't play a part in the ranking of the universities. So that kids Mm -hmm. can go, maybe not have great SAT or ACT scores, go to a community college, build their grades up, and then get in because the college's ranking system, their their rating won't be affected. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. also crazy, and I know USC even has a program where if you don't get in, they can put you, they'll give you a list of colleges community colleges or city colleges that you can go to in any part of the world um, that if you get a 3.5 you're pretty much guaranteed uh, entrance into USC after that even though you're you wouldn't have gotten in or didn't get in originally that's really interesting and and yeah I mean I feel like it, it, it I mean to even take one more step back I feel like the whole ranking system has just encouraged this feeling that there are good colleges and bad colleges, you know, and, and that, uh, you know, coincidentally, the quote unquote bad colleges are, are community colleges that we don't spend any public money on that have much lower, um, graduation rates. Right. And that are, are much more dominated by low income students than those most selective institutions. Right. But when you have a ranking system in your mind, you're, you don't do what you should do, which is look at that data and say, man, we should be spending more on our community colleges because they're not serving the kids who really need them the most. Instead, we say like, oh, those are bad schools. Let's get more of those kids into the quote unquote good schools, right? Uh, and so it, it has led to this phenomenon where, where the public is dedicating fewer and fewer public resources to public institutions of higher education. I mean, in fact, what you're describing, like that, that's, that should be a really good solution. Like uh, for a family that doesn't have a ton of money, it's a great idea to go to community college for a couple of years, spend very little, get the basics, you know, work hard, learn everything you can, and then transfer for your last two years into uh, a much, much more prestigious um, institution, do your high level classes there. There, uh, graduate with a great degree from that institution and only pay for two years instead of four, right? Like that that system, which is kind of one of the you know thoughts behind community colleges when they were invented, makes a lot of sense. But because I think we undervalue uh, those community colleges so much, um, it's it's a really difficult path to take because those community colleges don't have the resources to give you two years of education that will, in most cases, prepare you for USC, but they should. So I want to talk about, I'm going to throw out two crazy-making facts and talk about one. We'll just let the other sit there. and People can grab the book once it comes out and learn about it. So the, the one we're going to let sit there is that American colleges collectively now give more institutional aid to each student with a family income over $100,000 on average than they do to each student with a family income under 20000 
So that one we're just going to let lie. And the one we're going to jump on is that um, annual revenues at the College Board are close to a billion dollars, most of which comes from student fees for the SAT and AP, AP exams. Um, we're, we haven't even put in there the, the ACT. So there's been a war going on uh, in the last, now what, 40, 50 years between the ACT and SAT. And um, they've... they've uh, created some interesting uh, ways of winning the war. And um, one maybe we can just talk about is the SAT arguing for uh, its value as far as being a benefit for kids that are underprivileged. Yes. So, I mean, um, I, I read a lot, as you know, in the book about the College Board and the SAT, uh, and I'm, I'm not very generous <laughs> to the College Board. I, I, I'm mostly pretty hard on them. Uh, but I think that, you know, what's complicated about the College Board situation is that they are sort of two things at once. They're a nonprofit, right? Like, they, they are, uh, they're not supposed to be trying to make a lot of money. <laughs> they're supposed to be serving students and universities and helping uh, universities find the students who would most thrive there. But the way that things have developed, both because of the SAT and because of uh, US News and because of Merit Aid and because of larger changes in society, the SAT now is mostly a force that makes it easier for those uh, highly selective institutions to admit more rich kids and fewer poor kids, right? And I think that the College Board, uh, the, I think that's hurt the College Board's reputation. I think the, the SAT does not have a great reputation among um, uh, high school students, <laughs> uh, certainly, but I think among uh, folks in general in, in higher education and in education. Um, and so a few years ago, uh, the College Board really set out to change that reputation, to, to try to be seen more as a force for good and not for evil, a force for equity and not for inequity. And what I describe in the book is the way that that campaign uh, turned out to fall short and to mostly be about changing the perception and not changing the reality. Um, so it's frustrating, yes. And but but I think that 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 institution is, is is hampered by the fact that they are trying to do two things at once. They are on the one hand trying to create a more fair uh, higher education system. On the other, they're trying to make money, right? They're trying to Im increase their income, and they increase their income by increasing the number of students who take the SAT and by increasing the degree to which uh, institutions of higher education rely on the SAT and their admissions. Okay, you may have been hard on them in the book, but you certainly are being way too easy on them here. <laughs> as, as, and I just want to point out, and, and again, not we shouldn't pick on them because this is something I think that's happening all through society, uh, American society at least, and, and probably elsewhere in the world. But a false reporting of conclusions from data, or at least a very selective reporting of um, data and a manipulation of the conclusion um, that you draw from it, and which ends up, once it's taken another step and another step beyond, becoming misinformation that people are and I thought your best line of the book was, black is white and up is down. In other news, black is white and up is down. Um, so maybe you could talk about what that statement was in relation to as far as uh, the College Board's reporting of, of their analysis that they had done on the place of the, the SAT in college admissions. Sure. So there are three different sections in my book about, uh, about the SAT. Um, and two of them are about these... Um, uh, these 
experiments, these, these sort of national programs that the College Board undertook to try to make the SAT fairer. And one was uh, replicating this um, experiment that was done in, in uh, came out, the, the paper came out in 2013, uh, that showed or purported to show that if you, if you send uh, information packets to low income, uh, high achieving students in high school, they will make different decisions uh, about where to apply. Um, they will be more likely to apply to highly selective institutions and to go to those institutions. And so that made all sorts of headlines back in 2013. And I think part of the reason it was appealing, I mean, part of the reason was that it seemed like, oh, this might actually make higher education more equitable. But part of the reason I think it was appealing to a certain audience was that it put the blame uh, on the students. It said like, well, the reason institutions of higher education are so inequitable is that kids are making these terrible mistakes, right? They're betraying themselves. And if we just send them a packet, They'll change their minds. The institutions will let them in. Everything will be fine. And so the College Board made a big fanfare about rolling out uh, their participation in that, their replication of that experiment. It went on for five years. And it was during those five years that I was reporting on it and trying to get data from them on, like, is this working or not? And it wasn't working um, and, and it wasn't replicating well at all. And they did not go out of their way to uh, let that information out to the public. So I, I'm reporting a lot of it in my book for the first time, you know, six years after the program started. They, they published a little a little of it uh, last year, um, but mostly there's a huge gap between how much they trumpeted the experiment when it started uh, and, and how much they actually reported when it came out. The other was uh, this uh, collaboration with the Khan Academy, this online learning system, to provide free uh, test uh, practice for juniors and seniors who were taking the SAT. And when it when it came out, it was presented by the College Board as being this thing that was going to put um, high priced test prep out of business. That was going to um, that was going to level the playing field. That was going to mean like rich kids would no longer have this advantage through the SAT. Uh, and when they they got data back and reported it, they they were ex yes very selective in terms of what they what they reported and how they reported it. They just chose the numbers that made them look good. That made it look like this was really making a big difference. And when I was able to see uh, the real numbers that that were uh, that they were they were looking at internally, uh, they were telling a very different story. They were saying that actually it was it was rich kids uh, and kids with you know highly educated parents who were much more likely to be using um, official SAT practice on Khan Academy, and that poor kids and kids with lower PSAT scores uh, and Hispanic kids they were all using it less. Um, and that was just something they didn't report. And there was so there was this trend going on, I think, throughout this period that when uh, when it was something that, I, that made the college board look good, they spent a lot of time emphasizing it. When numbers came back that did not make the college board look good, they were much uh, quieter about it. And then the third um, campaign by the college board that I write about was this campaign uh, to make the public more skeptical about what are called test optional institutions. Uh, and so more and more American colleges are now going test optional, which means that if you're applying to those schools and you don't want to submit your SAT and your ACT scores, you can. They just won't look at that. They'll look at the rest of your application. Uh, and in most ways, this is a great idea, right? Because um, there are all sorts of low-income students who I talk to and who are out there who I didn't talk to, <laughs> um, who do great in high school, but because they don't have the money or the financial resources to do that expensive test prep, they're not getting the same sort of SAT and ACT scores. So they can go to apply to these colleges and they say, just look at my 4.0, look at my extracurricular activities, look at my personal essay, look at who I am. 
and I'm not going to tell you what my SAT score was. Uh, and you decide whether you're going to admit me, and they do. And so it's much easier for those institutions to admit those highly qualified students if they're not looking at their SAT or their ACT scores. So obviously, the College Board doesn't like this idea, idea very much because it de-emphasizes the importance of um, the SAT and the admissions process. And so uh, over the last few years, they, they undertook this campaign to emphasize uh, or to, to sort of promote skepticism about test optional admissions and to say that actually uh, GPAs, uh, high school GPAs, were the thing that benefited um, rich kids and that the SAT was the thing that leveled the playing field. And they put out a paper that I write about in lots of detail. I don't want to get too much in the weeds about it that tried to show this. Um, and my opinion, people can decide when they read the book, uh, was that it really did the opposite. It didn't show that at all. It showed that it's actually in SAT scores where rich kids have always had an advantage and are can, are increasing that advantage. Um, and GPAs are actually like a much fairer measure of who does well in school and who is going to do well um, in college, in university. Uh, and so institutions that put more weight on that, on GPA and how kids do in high school and less weight on SAT uh, and ACT scores are mo more likely to get a freshman class that is more uh, socioeconomically diverse, that is more equitable. And capable. And it was an effective sleight of hand, I think. It's like, wait, wait, the problem is great inflation. That's what we can't trust. And it, it really did divert people's attention. Um, yeah. And and I think has now become the big thing and the big point of conversation. So it was effective, as, as frustrating as that may be, if you're a part of any part of the system. And um, and definitely everyone's trying to do the right thing. Uh, there, aren't, there aren't really bad guys out there, but it is the... Uh, the consequence of, of the relations, I think, that have created this bit of a mess. So let's talk in our last few minutes about what is working. You spend quite a bit of the time in the book talking about the University of Texas and their solution, which was the accepting the top 10% rule. Um, it solved some problems and may, maybe created some other. But um, in just our last few minutes, let's talk about, I want readers to know about Uri Treisman and yeah. the work he is doing because he is a superhero. And, yeah. um, and so uh, you choose what stories you want to tell about okay, great. Uh, UT great. and Uri. I'll try, I'll try and do the whole, the whole sort of UT, UT story. So yeah, Uri is a uh, calculus professor, a math professor at the University of Texas and an amazing man and one of the most uh, um, influential math educators in the country. Um, but one of the reasons that it's significant that he's at the University of Texas is that uh, a couple of decades ago, the University of Texas uh, was forced to change their admissions policy. So I, I, I am... Um, you know, complimentary to the University of Texas, but but it is also important to note that they it wasn't their idea to admit kids these, this way. The Texas legislature forced them to do it. They forced uh, they they passed this law called the Top Ten Percent Law. Now it's about top uh, top six percent. If you're in the top six percent of your uh, high school class anywhere in the state of Texas, you are automatically admitted to the University of Texas at Austin, uh, no matter what your SAT scores are. So um, it's created this really interesting phenomenon because it, it basically it's not only a test optional school. It's like it's a school where you can't, they can't look at test scores. <laughs> you can't submit your test scores if you're in the, the automatically admitted part of the class. Um, and so what that creates in the freshman class at the University of Texas is some kids who are just like the kids at any highly selective institution. They're in the top six percent of their class in, you know, a rich suburb of Dallas or Houston. Um but then there are also kids who are in the top 6% of their school in, you know, a, a small uh, ranching community 
community in West Texas or in a Latino community down by the Rio Grande Valley or in the inner city of Houston or Dallas. And those kids uh, are fantastic students because they're in the top 6% of their class, but they have had a very different experience, uh, very different lives than those rich kids. So all these kids show up in Austin in the fall, um, and they do often have different sorts of academic preparation. But over the last decade or so, UT has taken great steps, and I talk about this, this administrator named David Lottie who did a lot of this, to level that playing field. And it turns out it's not that hard. <laughs> like like it, before he did what he what he set out to do, it was true that the, the poor kids were dropping out at higher rates than the rich kids. But it wasn't because they weren't academically prepared, even though they had lower SAT scores. It was because it was like expensive and confusing and uh, and scary to be a kid from, you know, the Rio Grande Valley or some ranching town in West Texas and show up in Austin surrounded by all of these, you know, academic superstars. Um, and but when he did a little extra work in especially in freshman year to make those students feel like they belonged and they could succeed, th that's what happened. And so Uri Treisman is sort of the supercharged, <laughs> turbocharged version of that. And he teaches freshman calculus at UT and freshman calculus uh, uh, it, it has become this real barrier for lots of students who want to enter any of the STEM fields. You've got to pass freshman calculus, and a lot of students don't. It's a very hard class. Um, and especially at UT and other places, the students who uh, were coming in, you know, from a, a low-income high school, often that didn't offer AP calculus, they were much less likely to pass AP calculus. So Uri tries to change that, and he has instituted a lot of practices and policies uh, and and just sort of like... Um, uh, has changed the, the mood, the feeling of his class to being one where those kids, especially those kids from the less resourced high schools, the great students uh, who are automatically admitted at UT, they feel like they can succeed. And he gives them extra help uh, and, um, and he doesn't lower the bar for them, but he gives them extra time, uh, extra you know practice sessions. He encourages them to work in groups. Um, he gives them messages that say like, yep, you might've failed this first midterm, but you're gonna come back and succeed. Um, and so I spent a whole semester following his class. I unfortunately did not improve my calculus knowledge <laughs> very much, but I really did improve my understanding of of the way that higher education works and can work. And how it can uh, work best, right? Absolutely. Because he raises and so, the bar for them. And then he says, but he I'm here for you. We're all here yeah. for you. We're raising the bar, but we're here. And that, and that that has this really profound effect on those students. Not only you know do more of them uh, pass and succeed, but they go on after after starting their their UT experience with in Uri's class. They're much more likely to go on, stay in those STEM fields, uh, succeed in general, um, and and you know it, it changes their life that one class. So I pondered the title of your book um, a lot from the first time I heard of it till after I I finished reading it. The years that matter most: how college makes or breaks us, and. I'm realizing just now that us is uh, a really broad term because it's mm -hmm. it's our nation. Uh, and it doesn't matter if you have mm -hmm. kids in college or you have kids at all, that as a community and as a nation, we do better when our kids um, have a high school to go to and go to that high school and when they have a college to go to and then go to that college. Uh, you end the book by saying the levers for change are all around us. We can affect them as students, as parents, as educators, and as citizens. We just need to decide which way we want to pull. Um, so what lever would you pull first? I mean, you have pulled already, you've written this book. So you've pulled about a thousand levers for all of us to get us going. Um, is there another one you want to set our attention to? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like one of the reasons I end the book like that is that I, 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 there, it's tempting to say like, well, here's the one policy that if we just pass it, everything will change. But the reality is, uh, first of all, that that policy doesn't exist. There is no one law that could be passed that would that would fix these things. And second, I feel like there's a way that 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 narrowing it that way almost sort of lets us off the hook, right? It just makes us think, well, we don't really need to change everything about the system. We just need to change this one thing. And really what has to change is our attitude, our attitude as parents, as uh, as citizens, as students, if we're making our way through college, certainly as educators and administrators, to, to sort of understand that the system is unfair, but it wouldn't take that much to make it more fair. It would take some changes in admissions. It would certainly take some changes in, uh, in funding and how seriously we take public higher education in this country. Um, and then it would take some changes in the way we educate kids, you know, the way the way that what David Lottie and, and Uri Treisman did at UT uh, to when when those kids are getting into these great institutions to making sure that they succeed. Uh, so that's a lot of work. It's, it's some big changes, but they're all quite possible. Um, again, we just need to make up our minds that we're going to push in that direction. And Paul, I just want to thank you so much for the book and uh, for joining us today. And that got me thinking. A real pleasure. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Thanks a lot. Okay, we'll talk soon. And I, I just, I know you got to go, but one second, because I was up in the middle of the night, I was like, Paul, I, I was remembering reading your book. And, and I remember this was before I even had a radio show. And I was like, I want to call Paul and say, like, this was so good. And I think in your other book, you had talked to this gal, um, African American, she was getting like kicked out of school, her grades were terrible. Um, but then her grandma kind of stepped up and yeah, said, yeah, yeah. you know what, you can do this, I expect yeah. you to do this, and I am here for you. And it turned this child around. Yeah, that was Kiwana Lerma yeah. um, uh, and in How Children Succeed. And yeah. yeah, actually, that was that doing that reporting was on this group organization called One Goal in Chicago. That was what got me started on this yes, book. Yes, because, because that, that was is like, it. That, was the higher education, that right? is the red circle around the story. This is what we got to do. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. I really okay. appreciate it. Okay, Talk to bye. you later. Bye. Bye.